The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 202. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. This is your host, Richard Ryerson. As always, thanks for tuning in. And I'm excited today. I finally got off my bucket list for my original list when I started the show. I wanted to talk to Simon Sinek. I was always a fan of his. You probably remember him or you've seen him. If you haven't, go check out this TED Talk on Start With Why. Um, it's a great TED Talk, and that's how I first came across with him. And, of course, his book, Start With Why, How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action. But he's got a new book out there. It came out last year, and this is where I really wanted to talk with him because he spent some time with the Marine Corps and he, f- he finally saw what I've been talking about on the show for the last couple of years. And so it's a great conversation. His new book is called um, Leaders Eat Last. And it's all based on this conversation he had with the Marine Corps general. And he said, describe the Marine Corps in, in uh, their leadership style. And he said, leaders eat last. And so he wrote a book that kind of captures that sentiment. And I'm excited to talk to him about it. And it's a great conversation. He is an unshakable optimist. He believes in a bright future. And uh, he, he, from his bio, he says he imagines a world where people wake up every day inspired to go to work, feel safe while they are there, and return home at the end of the day feeling fulfilled by the work they do, feeling that they have contributed something greater than themselves. And I love that philosophy because we talk about that a lot here in Dose of Leadership. It is about being part of something bigger than yourself. And as leaders, we can create that environment. It is the environment, which is so key and so critical. And Simon talks about that in this interview. And I love that insight because it's so true. We think it's about the charismatic personalities. It's less about that. It's it's more about creating that environment where people can thrive and spreading that leadership responsibility throughout an entire organization. So great conversation with Simon. It was so much fun. I hope you get that sense and I'm excited to bring it to you today. Here's Simon Sinek on Dose of Leadership. Simon, what a thrill to have you on the show finally. Thanks for coming to Dose of Leadership. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You know, I've been a big fan of your work ever since, you know, everybody's seen your TED Talk from, uh, I guess it's been about, what has it been, five, six years ago? 2009, right? I think uh, yeah, it came out end of 2009, yeah. yeah. I, it was, I think it went online, I mean, it went on TED.com in the middle of 2010, but, but either way, it's been out a while. Yeah, so, and then when you came out with your book last year, with Leaders 8 Last, it certainly resonated with me being a prior Marine Corps officer, and uh, I'm curious, how did, uh, how was your experience with the Marines? What did you learn from that? You know, it was a remarkable experience. I had the, the great fortune to visit Quantico, where the Marines select their officers, and Paris Island, where they make Marines, and Camp Lejeune, where they go out to fleet. And I visited all those places and talked to a lot of Marines. And uh, I was just astonished and astounded by how human the organization is. It, was, it just it blew me away. And, 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 the, and, you know, I think the Marines don't give themselves enough credit. You know, when they talk about the power of boot camp, for example, 
Nobody's getting broken down and built back up. So much more sophisticated than that. And what what young individuals are learning when they become Marines is to learn self-confidence in their own ability and to learn the value of working together. And and those two lessons make Marines. I love that you said that. You know, I was, and it's it, it really hit home to me. And I've you know I've, I've met a lot of World War II vets and uh, was friends with a guy who was an Iwo Jima vet. And he lied and joined the Marine Corps when he was 17. And I asked him, you know, after, you know, he's just got these crazy stories that you just can't even believe. You know, I was trying to buy beer with a fake idea when I was 17. And he's storming the beaches of Iwo Jima, you know, and it's just hard to to imagine. And I asked him, what was the biggest lesson you learned from all of that? You know, the depth of depravity that you saw and just the, 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 the hell that you went through. And he said the biggest thing he learned was how to love another human being. And yeah. it just struck me, just and it's so true. It is a loving organization, isn't it? It really is. There's a there's a three star general uh, I know recently retired three star general. He used to be in charge of all Marine Corps development, both officer and enlisted. Uh, Lieutenant General George Flynn, who actually wrote the forward to my book, and he gives this fantastic speech about what makes Marines great, and and what makes great leaders, and and the secret is love. Yeah. You know, and you hear this coming from this this hardened Marine, and he's talking about love love of country, love of core, and love of your fellow Marine. And, uh, and I think that's exactly the same for any organization. If they can achieve that, then that's what great leaders are supposed to do. You know, lo- love in the cause, love in the company, and love in, in, in my colleagues. Um, it's, it's really sort of, if you think about it, you know, only in the military do people refer to their colleagues as brothers and sisters. Yet, I've never heard anybody in a company refer to each other as brothers and sisters. They're colleagues. <laughs> right. In other words, even the very words we choose to use to describe the people with whom we work are are distant. They're not familial. Yeah, it's true. You know, we've I've talked to a couple of the Marine friends. We've talked about this. I've been in the corporate arena for 14 years, and there were guys in the Marine Corps that we considered, you know, that you didn't get along with, or maybe even went, you know, almost fisticuffs with. And if that person called me today and he needed a thousand bucks, I wouldn't even hesitate. I would give it to this person. But I can't say the same about some of the people I work with in the in the civilian sector. And again, it's not a slam against the corporate sector. It's just, it's just something that that's, it is. And I try to figure out why it is. And that was really one of the things that set me on the path to write Leaders Eat Last, quite frankly, was I kept meeting these people, as you said, who would give their lives to save someone they didn't even like. And yet in the private sector, we don't even like to give up credit for things. So that was the question I was asking, which is, you know, how is it this one group of people are willing to give their lives for people they don't even like, and this other group of people doesn't even like to give up credit for things? Like, where, where is that? <laughs> right. And my, my original conclusion was they're just better people, and these better people are drawn to a life of service, which is why they're in the military, but I, I was wrong, which is, which is what my research, uh, which is how the, the path my research took me on, which is it's not the people, it's the environment. Yeah. To get the environment right. You get the you get you get that behavior. I love that you said that, and so that was my kind of my next question was, so is this something we can replicate in the corporate arena? I believe we can, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Hundred percent, and that was the great conclusion. You know, I went, I set out to understand these people, and I ended up learning about the environment. And remember, when a young marine shows up or a young recruit shows up at Paris Island or out in the, out in the, the West Coast. I mean, they show up as individuals who care about their their safety, their happiness. They regret their decisions the minute they're standing out there on the <laughs> right. And 13 weeks, they they literally learn what it means to to care about your your each other. And and the the drill instructors would tell me for the first two weeks or so, you see all these people trying to race ahead and run up the the rope quicker than somebody else to prove how strong they are and prove to the uh, to the DI that 
that, that they're worthy of being Marines. And by the end, they go backwards to grab somebody who's dragging to pull them through, you know? Right. Um, this is a transition. And so if, if you can take civilians off the street, because all Marines start up as civilians, if you can take civilians off the street and turn them into Marines, then of course you can take any organization and create an environment that generates the same kind of love, intensity, loyalty, sacrifice, ability to innovate and advance the company, advance the mission, uh, as it, as, just like the Marines do. It's, it's 100% replicable. Yes, I love that you said that. And I remember getting in an argument with one of my a CEO I used to work with, we were like oil and water, and, and he didn't believe that, you know, he thought it was all um, people did great things because it was, you know, based on money and salary. And I gave him the example. I said, look, people don't join the Marine Corps be- to get rich. I said, I think if you are, you know, want people to do great things, make them feel part of something bigger than themselves. And that was my argument with him, and he disagreed with me. But uh, I well, think well, that— what's, what's, his, what's his definition of great, you know? Um, like— you know, in, in the military, they give medals to people who are willing to sacrifice themselves so that others may gain. In business, we give bonuses to people who are willing to sacrifice others so that we may gain. Right. So what's his definition of great? Is his definition of great the ability to, you know, double revenues and triple profits um, while destroying the lives of human beings along the way? Is that his definition of great? Yeah, I don't think. You know? Yeah, so, exactly. So yeah, if that's, if, that's, if that's how he achieves greatness, then his model is working just fine. Right, exactly. Well, that's and, a- and, and that model, by the way, that model is an excellent strategy for short-term results. I cannot dispute the short-term results that that strategy achieves. It is, it, it is 100% true that you can double revenues and triple uh, profits um, by laying people off and, 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 and cheating your customers and not being entirely honest. You can 100% do it, but that, that success doesn't last. It's very, very short-lived. Whereas the model that you and I espouse, um, you can achieve those results. You just won't achieve them in one year. But more importantly, the growth that you have is steady and consistent, and it's a steady uphill. So in total, in total, the success and the results will be even greater than that other model. I love that you said that. You know, you you do a great example in Leaders Eat Last where you kind of um, contrast kind of the short-term leader of Jack Welch. Uh, who was yeah. the former CEO of GE, and then the, the long-term leaders, you put it, with uh, Jeff Senegal, the former CEO of, of Costco. I mean, talk yeah. about that. Yeah. yeah. So, so I'll tell you about it, because, you know, we, we, for some reason, we hail Jack Welch as this great leader, and I'm sure that guy that you had that disagreement with would buy into the model that Jack Welch leader. Now, Jeff Immel, uh, Jack Welch's successor, himself said it was easy, even a dog could lead a company in the 80s and 90s, <laughs> right? Right. So in other words, in boom, in boom times, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships, it's easy to do well. And though Welch may have done better than everyone else, he didn't have to suffer through hard times. And we can't judge the quality of a crew, how they perform in calm waters. We can only judge the quality of a crew, how they perform in rough waters. And on that standard, Jack Welch does not look so good. If you look, uh, if you compare Jack Welch, who we hail as great, I don't know why, <laughs> with Jim Senegal, who was the founder and CEO of Costco. Costco was regularly criticized by Wall Street analysts, regularly criticized for putting customers and employees first and ignoring the shareholder. That regularly criticized. And they kept saying that his stock was flat. If you compare Costco to GE from the year that Costco went public, which was um, about 1984, right? 
and Jack right. Welch had been in office about four years, but so sort of call it January 1985. So we can compare apples to apples, and you invest a dollar in both. If you look at GE stock value through the 80s and 90s, it was like a roller coaster, highs and lows and right. highs and lows. And if you were lucky enough to get out at exactly the right time, you may have made 1,400% on your money if you timed it right, which nobody ever does. But it's literally a roller coaster. Whereas Costco is the slow and steady slope. So on an annualized or quarterly basis, yes, their stock looks flat. It absolutely does. Whereas GE looks like this fantastic ride because you have these huge highs on a quarterly or annualized basis. But if you pull back since those two companies went, uh, since, since Costco went public, if you pull back, you see the roller coaster that is GE. Right. And you see, the, you see the steady increase slope that was almost unaffected by any of the stock market um, crashes over the years. Um, when 2008 hit, GE needed a $300 billion bailout. Wow. So how strong, how strong was the foundation of the company that Jack built if it couldn't even sustain itself through hard times without, with a, without a government bailout? Costco needed nothing through any of the stock market crashes. And if you invested a dollar in both, to this day, you would have made 600% on your money in GE, you would have made 600% on your money in the S&P 500, and you would have made 1,200% in your money in uh, Costco. What a great so example. So if you want to talk shareholder value, Costco is the one. That's a great example. You know, and it's so true because – and I think that's part of the problem is that we never lead for the long term. And I think that is is part of the root of the problem. And in, in, in same thing with Costco too. And, and I, I'm sure you can see this in GE when Jack Welch left. When you in, insert a short-term leader like that, nothing's sustainable, right? Everything kind of goes into turmoil when he leaves. You know, someone like um, – with Costco, when he leaves, it still goes on that steady course because he's laid a foundation, a legacy where everyone's thinking and acting like a leader. I guess that's that's how I see it. Just Jim Senegal has already left, and the company's continuing exactly well based on the foundation that he built. Um, you're 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 100 right, and you know this is this is the problem with this concept of investing in our modern day. We invest in things like education. We invest in things like the future. We invest in things like our children. Right. Right. Nobody gets. And nobody gets a, a positive ROI on their children after year three, you know? <laughs> right. Like, we, we invest in things for the long term. We bet on things for short-term gain. You go to the casino and you bet on red, you know, red 13. You know, you, you, you put a coin in the, in the slot machine and, you, and you, you take a bet. That's what betting is. And so what we're calling investing is not really investing, it's betting. You invest in Costco, you bet on GE because you're hoping to put your money in in the morning and take it out in the evening or put it in the morning and take it out a week or a month later. That's not investing, that's betting. And I have no problem with that model. Just call it what it is. And I don't even have a problem that some companies choose to offer a betting model. The problem is the number of companies that choose to have that model. And, and, and we need much more balance. We need some companies that are good for investing, and we need some companies that are good for betting. The problem is most companies are good for betting and too few are good for investing. Yeah, amen to that. You know, one company, you, you highlight one of my favorite companies is uh, Barry uh, Waymiller in your your book. What a great company. Talk to me a little bit about that. I mean, one thing I love about them is they measure their success by the way they touch the lives of the people. I think that that is a type of business I wish we had more of. Yes, and, 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 and that is uh, uh, one of the companies that sort of stands far and above as an example of the stuff that you and I talk about. Um, 
I, I met Bob Chapman, the CEO of Barry Waymiller, a few years ago. He, he, he found me and sort of hunted me down, and we had lunch together. And, and he, uh, he told me about this company he was building that, that exemplifies everything that I was writing about. And I, I'm an idealist, you know? And I write about what things should be with the, with the knowledge that they'll never be perfect, but we should die trying, you know what I mean? We should right. at least aim for the ideal. You know, aim for 100 and be disappointed when we hit 80, as opposed to aiming for 30 and being ecstatic when we hit 31. Exactly. That's my mentality, you know? And so Bob was telling me about this company that, had, that he had, and I literally looked him in the eye and said, I want to see it to believe it. And so we traveled around the country together, and he took me to a bunch of his factories, he made no announcements about it and stayed out of every meeting. He was not in any of my meetings. He gave me open access to talk to whomever I wanted. Wow. I could roam the hall, could roam the floor of the factory and talk to whomever and ask anything I liked. And I was blown away. I met people who, could, who came to tears talking about how much they loved their jobs. Wow. I met people who cared desperately about each other, who were committed entirely to seeing the company do well so that all of them could enjoy the successes. And if one division did really well and one division was suffering, you know, usually I, in, in a company I hear it all the time, which is they complain that they're, they're paying for everybody else's losses, right? Right. And I would ask them about this because I met some divisions that struggled and I had met some divisions that were gangbusters. And they said to me that they were proud that they made enough money to cover the losses of the, of the other division that was hurting, because one day it could be reversed. That's how they thought. Wow. And so I left. I left my, my tour of Barry Waymiller, and I said to Bob, I can no longer be accused of being a crazy idealist if what I imagine exists in reality. You know? In other words, the company that I talk about, the, the, the environment that I, I say that can be created in the private sector, exists. It exists. I've seen it. That's exciting. And I've taken other people there. I've taken Amy Cuddy from Harvard University. I've taken William Urey, who wrote Getting to Yes. You know, I've taken people to see these factories, and every single one of them is blown away. Oh, I love it. It gives me goosebumps thinking about that. What is Bob's background? Where did, what, where did he, how did he get to where he's at? Bob, Bob uh, he took over the business from his father, and uh, it was a failing business when Bob took over, and Bob was your traditional business school-raised executive. I mean, he was a trained accountant. He was a numbers guy. Um, he had his MBA, and he was trained in management like every MBA is trained in management. He saw people as a resource that you, you, you cut people when you need to make money, and they were just another line item. And he, that was just Bob. I mean, that's how he, he was pretty much like everybody else. And he, he had this experience that it hit him. He, it hit him like a ton of bricks, and he, never, he didn't see where it came from. He just, he just purchased a company, and he was sitting in the cafeteria of this company. Nobody knew who he was, because even though he was the new owner, nobody knew who he was yet. It was like he literally just bought this company. And he was sitting in the cafeteria waiting to go for his first meeting uh, at this new company that he bought to, you know, to sort of get run rundown on what everything was going on. And he saw a group of people in the cafeteria also having their morning coffee, and they were doing March Madness. They were, like, screaming and yelling and having fun and laughing and, and sort of enjoying each other's company and, and having their morning coffee. And then the whistle blew for them to go to work, and Bob said it was like a switch. All of a sudden, all of their their posture just sank, and their shoulders went down, and their, their smiles went away. And he, he was confounded how, how they, people enjoy each other's company, but as soon as they go to work, that love and enjoyment just evaporates. 
And he thought to himself, why can't we have fun at work? <laughs> right. That was, the, that was the initial impression, which is they have so much energy with each other and they have no energy to go to work. How do you get the energy at work? Well, make it fun, right? And so he went into his first meeting and basically in, implemented the system of, of games and, you know, where they would use business to compete against each other, but not at each other. It, wasn't, it was for fun. You know, right. it was, there, was no, there was no big bonus or anything. It was just for fun. And he saw the results rise. And it wasn't until a couple years later that he was sitting in a church at a wedding that he realized what he had to become, what, what it meant for him to be a leader. And he was sitting in the pews uh, of a wedding. He was just a guest with his, you know, with his wife. He was sitting as a guest at this wedding. And he watched as a father ceremonially walks his daughter down the aisle and gives her away. That's the ceremony. He, he, a father gives away his daughter, right? Right. And, and then takes his seat. He, he walks away. And now the ceremony is about this, this, this traditional ceremony of this husband um, promising to take care of his, his baby girl, and she traditionally takes his name as if to belong to a new tribe where that's where her care and security will come from. This man has spent his entire life looking after his baby girl only to give her away to the care of another man. That's the tradition. That's the ceremony, right? Right. And it struck Bob, that's what's happening in the business. He says every single employee in his company, every single employee is someone's son or someone's daughter. And their parents have given away their precious child and asked the company to please take care of them. And Bob realized his response, they're joining a new tribe. They're leaving their family and joining a new tribe. And Bob realized his responsibility was, was as powerful as that, that husband. He is, he, is a, he is a father. He is a husband. He is a wife. He is, he is all of these things to his, to his people. That's what his responsibility was. And he set about changing the company to reflect that new, that new responsibility. Wow. What a great aha moment. It's so unique that it came to him so late in life like that, you know, after going through all yeah. those experiences. That's a, that's a unique. I, I love that. Proof, which is proof that it can be learned. Yep. And it's proof that it's never too late for someone to make the change. He, he wasn't like that when he was in his 20s or 30s. It came later, you know? Yeah. It came later. It came in his, it came in his, in his, in his 40s. So, so it, it, it's absolutely doable. And, and this is what the Marines do. Yep. I mean, this is the comparison, right? Yeah. I mean, you know as well as I do. The reason I called the book Leaders Eat Last is because when, when trying to learn about what makes the Marines great, I asked Lieutenant General Flynn what makes the Marines great, and he said to me, officers eat last. Yep. And you go to any chow hall anywhere in the world, and Marines line up in rank order from most junior eats first, most senior eats last. And even though the senior one is entitled to eat first because of their rank, they don't. And it's not, it's not because it's uh, in a, any rule book and nobody orders them or tells them they have to. It's because the the Marines view leadership as a responsibility, not as a rank. Yep. It's not about being in charge. It's about taking care of those in your charge. And just as we feed our children before we feed ourselves, so too does a leader feed their people before they feed themselves. That's right. Which is the opposite. Which is the opposite of what entrepreneurs are told. Entrepreneurs are always told, "Feed yourself first. Feed yourself first. No, it's not. It's take care of your people, and your people will take care of you. Yep. If you take care of yourself, your people will take care of themselves. In other words, they'll be selfish, they'll be self-interested, they'll be paranoid, they'll be cynical, and they'll abandon you at the next best offer. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm just refreshing to hear you say that, and I'm I'm glad that you you've seen that. You're absolutely right. I mean, I'm, I remember the the second week of um, the basic school, which is the six month infantry school after we got commissioned, right? And so, even though as a pilot, we all had to go through this infantry course, and and it's amazing what uh, you find these senior staff NCOs. They're the ones that actually teach the officers to become great leaders, and that's what a lot of people yeah. miss, right? And I and I know yeah. when I I first got out, I got laid off from American Airlines, and I got a job as a shipping supervisor after 9-11 and I was like I walked in and I was literally like I was walking out of the set of Sons of Anarchy right and here I am in my my khaki pants and my button-down collared shirt from JCPenney and Marine Corps haircut and these guys these motorcycle guys looking like what is this chump gonna tell me but I treated it just like a a brand new lieutenant would right you go to that salty battle-hardened staff sergeant and say how can I help you and what can you do and that staff sergeant really teaches the officer how to become a great officer You know, it's it, what you're pointing out is so subtle and so so important, uh, which is in business, executives choose their replacements. Right, right. right. One executive looks at another executive and says, "You will be a, you will do a good job being a leader, replacing me." Right. So the senior person chooses the junior rep- person to replace them. Right. Right. In the Marine Corps, when they when they select their officers, they ask the enlisted people to train the officers. That's right. In other words, the enlisted people get to stand there and, 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 and evaluate, you want me to follow you? <laughs> right. As soon as, you get, as soon as you get your commission, I work for you, right. and you want me to follow you? No way would I follow you into battle, you know? Right. And so, and so what, if, what if the people got to choose the CEO? What if the people got to choose the leaders? I think we'd have a very, very different standard of, of, uh, of leadership, quite frankly. Yeah. How did you get so passionate about business and leadership? I mean, what did you? I remember reading somewhere you kind of fell into it. How did you fall into it? Yeah, I did fall into it. I, I, um, I'm passionate about neither business nor leadership. I'm passionate about people. Right. Right. And at the end of the day, I am one. <laughs> <laughs> and and I live in the world. And whether I like it or not, I have to in, interact with people. The ones I like, the ones I don't like, the ones I know, and the ones I don't know. And some of them um, I have to trust, and some of them I have to be wary of. And so I'm navigating life just like anybody else is navigating life. And it's through my own struggles and my own personal challenges that I have learned these lessons. My journey began as a personal one, which is I lost my passion for what I was doing. I owned a small business, and I was really hating it. And superficially, everything looked good. I mean, I made a decent living. I had amazing clients. I mean, I was living the American dream. I owned my own business. You know, and superficially, on paper, I should have been happy, except I didn't want to wake up and do it again the next day. Right. And I was very embarrassed by that. I kept it to myself because, you know, other people had real problems. And I didn't, not at least not the way I perceived it. And so it, it consumed me. It made me feel worse, and I became paranoid. And I became just, I hate, I, I never went out, I became antisocial. And it wasn't until you know, a couple of my friends came to me sort of concerned, and they said, you're not yourself, are you okay? And it was the, it was the confidence I had that someone had my back, that, that my friends desperately cared about who I was and my well-being, not how successful I was, that gave me the confidence to attack this problem. And so I started searching for a solution, and that's when I discovered this naturally occurring pattern that I later called the golden circle um, of these three essential components that every organization, even our own careers, always exist. They, uh, this why, how, and what. 
Right. And I knew what I did, and I knew how I did it, but I didn't know why. And I realized I needed to solve that missing piece. So it was never a commercial or academic enterprise. It was, it was literally to save myself. And it worked, and it restored my passion to levels I'd never experienced prior. And I did what anyone would do when you find something beautiful. I shared it with the people I love. Right. You see a great movie, you tell your friends to go see it, right? So I did the same thing. I told my friends this idea. And my friends would invite me to their homes to share with their friends. And, and it, I just kept getting invited, and I just kept saying yes. And that, <laughs> that's how I find myself on this path. I totally love that. Organic. Yeah, and I love that, you know, finding the why, the big why. We talk about that in leadership, and I don't know, I'm sure you probably, this was mentioned to you, maybe some of the Marine Corps officers you in, interviewed, but that whole idea of starting with the why, that's another reason why I think the Marine Corps is so successful at what they do, is the high level, higher you go up in the officer chain, the more your job is coming up with what they call the commander's intent, which is all about the why, right? And communicating right. like a madman what the why and the purpose is. Because when you do that, you allow that decentralized decision-making process to succeed, right? So the people on the right. front lines can make decisions without asking for permission. And you get this culture of asking for forgiveness instead of permission because of a necessity of what they do in the combat environment. Yep. But that, that start with the why is really what's drummed into the higher-level officer corps you know, focus on that commander's intent. I'm sure you got yeah. that from your your. Yeah, of course. Let, letter letter to Garcia, right? Yes, exactly uh, right. Which is which is what, what they do in the Marines is they say get this job done, but they don't tell you how to do it. Right. And so you have to figure out how to get it done. And and this is where intuition and 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 cooperation um, and flexibility all matter. Yeah. Um, and they trust their Marines to get the job done. Um, staying within the, the only box that they offer is stay within the confines of the law and the values that the military and the Marines, of course, specifically hold dear. Right. Everything else is fair game. Very good. Well, Simon, I think you're just absolutely wonderful. Consider me a lieutenant in your, your battle to spread this word. I'm always here to support you and your cause. I'm, I'm a big fan of what you've done. I have been for a long time. And um, as we wrap up here, let me just kind of a fun question. If you had the ultimate night where you could have just this, this Kick butt dinner party with five people, live or dead. Who would those people be? You know, the it, it seems it's a cheesy, you know, disappointing answer, but I think uh, those people would be some of the people that I already get to spend time with. You know, it's the people who I already. It's it's not people that I sort of have these fantasies of meeting who who, who haven't lived in two hundred years. Because what if you know you have to be very careful of meeting your heroes. Because what if they're <laughs> nice people? Exactly right. You know? Um, so the people I would have dinner with are, are some of the people right now that I admire and I love and who I know have my back because I, I want to be able to sit back in dinner and look at this table of five people and say, I'm the luckiest person alive and I'm successful because of these people. So so those are the people I would have dinner with, quite frankly. And that is not a cheesy answer, my friend. That's a great answer. It's the people you're living life with, and I appreciate that answer wholeheartedly. So thank you for answering. I love that question. Guys, Simon, thanks for coming on the show. How can people get in touch with you and, and support your cause? Um, you know, I'm in all the usual usual places. I'm on Facebook. Uh, uh, I'm on Twitter. I tweet um, my, my little ideas um, on a semi-regular basis um, at Simon Sinek. We have a website, uh, startwithwhy.com, with lots of free resources, um, both about leadership and public speaking and how to write a resume and, and, and all this good stuff. We even have a why discovery course for individuals and small businesses if they want to learn their why. So lots, lots, of, lots of good stuff uh, in all the usual places. Very good. I'll have links to all this on the post. Again, Simon, such a thrill and honor to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, and thanks for helping me uh, share my ideas. You bet. 
Well, I just love this conversation with Simon. He's just a, a fun conversation. I love his passion. I love his enthusiasm. You know, go check him out at startwithwhy.com. I'll have links to this on the post, but go check him out. And I highly recommend his books, Start With Why, and of course, Leaders Eat Last. It definitely, if you're interested in leadership, these are must must reads, in my opinion. So go go check them out and put them in your library. And uh, again, you can tell that Simon is an optimistic guy, and he shares his optimis- optimism with anybody that listens. And so I was so thankful he came on this show. So let me hear what you think about the show. Send me a line at richard at doseofleadership.com. Uh, send me a line and tell me where you're at in your leadership journey. And if you haven't done so already, go subscribe to this podcast in a Stitcher or iTunes and leave a rating and review. It helps so much to keep that visibility up with all those podcasts out there. And the more that you give me your feedback on there, the more visibility the show gets and the easier it is for people to find. Again, I thank you so much for being a fan of the show and taking the time to listen. And I will see you next time. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.